Sarah mentioned last week we covered the true meaning of Sabbath and um, perhaps like me you were challenged as Sarah pointed out that scriptural rest is not uh, necessarily inactivity. It actually includes intentional activity in the form of bringing shalom which is wholeness and peace to someone in need that we know. And Jesus' healing of the man with a withered arm did not violate the Sabbath, as the Pharisees concluded. Um, Jesus gifted the man wholeness and peace and joy, um, who had lived without it all his life. And this is God's true intention for the Sabbath, isn't it? So today, uh, in addition to refreshing ourselves, which I I think is also an important part of um, Sabbath for us, we can bring um, shalom to someone else today if we have the opportunity. So today we're covering the next few passages in Mark's Gospel and we're going to look at four important points to come out of of this section of Scripture that covers what it means to be a true disciple. And that's the the title of uh, our talk today, Being a True Disciple, What It Means to Be a True Disciple. The first point is that Jesus wants disciples, not crowds. The second point is that Jesus gives a unique identity for each of his disciples to grow into, including ourselves. Thirdly, rejecting that identity that Jesus offers us has eternal consequences. And fourthly, becoming a disciple of Jesus grants us membership into an eternal family, which is actually our first family. So a few challenging uh, points to cover there, but that's that's where we're going. So the first point, Jesus wants disciples, not crowds. Um, I don't know about you, but ever since we started um, the series on Mark's Gospel, I've been puzzling why Jesus keeps on telling people he healed and delivered, not to tell anyone about the healing. And today he even commanded um, the man... Uh, the, the demons and in, in the man that he healed are delivered not to tell others about him either. And it never seems to work. Um, but nevertheless, Jesus keeps on telling people this. And I've been puzzling about why. Um, and in the first section of today's passage, I think um, I got a glimpse of why Jesus uh, kept saying this. The very first words of verse 7 uh, Jesus withdrew. I don't know if you notice that. The very first words, Jesus withdrew. The Greek word for withdrew here means those who through fear seek some other place or shun sight. Those who through fear seek some other place or shun sight. So Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. He was trying to avoid crowds. What was he afraid of? I think he was afraid that people were only seeking him for what he could do for them instead of seeking him because of who he is. At the start of verse 8, it says, when they heard about all he was doing, so in other words, all these miracles were going on, um, then people started coming from miles around. And... And Sidon um, is actually outside of Israel, so Gentiles were coming to him, and it's about two days' walk. It, it's I think it's about uh, fifty-five miles or something like that. It's a long, long way. So people were were coming to him from all directions, including Gentiles. 
there must have been at least hundreds of people there, possibly thousands. It's the old what's in it for me syndrome. And to be fair, you can't blame them, can you? Um, if I was lame or blind and I heard about someone that could uh, deliver me, heal me, I'd, I would have gone to them. I, I would have, no matter how far away they were, um, I would have gone to them for the same reason. Um, but the reality is that once people receive their healing and deliverance, we really hear from them again. We, we, they don't seem to, <laughs> to come to them after that. And uh, in just a few short chapters, ones that we will skip forward to um, for Easter, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Remember that? Who's there in support? Who's there with him? Four women and one man, according to John's Gospel. Four women and one man. Where was everyone that he healed? Where was everyone that he delivered? Nowhere to be seen, including his own disciples, to be fair. You would have thought that if someone healed you after 30 years of being lame, you would have at least have wanted to, to go to them and support them in their time of need. But no, five people was all there were. And the sad fact is, isn't it, that miracles for people don't automatically convert them to disciples, do they? Uh, I don't know if you remember the story in Luke uh, 17 where Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. But only one, and he was a Samaritan, came back and thanked him. The other nine, they just went on with their lives. They, they had received what they wanted and they, didn't, they weren't actually interested in following Jesus. They were interested in getting their healing. And I often used to wonder about all the sick people that J Jesus didn't heal in Israel and all the sick people people and the and demon possessed people in the rest of the world um, at that time who were longing for healing and deliverance and never got it. But the ugly truth, um, I think, that we're confronted uh, in the scripture here today is that Jesus could have spent 50 more years of his life healing and delivering people and he would have ended up with the same number of people at the foot of the cross. Would we have been any different if we had lived at that time? Part of me wants to say yes. Part of me wants to say, yeah, I would have, I would have been at the foot of the cross too if I'd been delivered and healed. But the truth is, probably not. It makes you quite sorrowful, doesn't it, about the state of our hearts. We seek what we desire instead of the giver of gifts. So I think the reason why Jesus kept insisting that people not speak of the healing and deliverance is that he didn't want a whole lot of people turning up to get what they wanted and then shooting off. The sad fact is that often um, afflictions and troubles, they force us towards Jesus, not away from us. And all through the scriptures, you remember that passage in Deuteronomy where it says once you've settled down in the land and you've received all you wanted and your and your stomachs are full of good food and and everything is if you like uh, milk and honey don't forget the lord the sad fact is often once we get what we have desired for many many years often we drift away from the lord and this is why we saw earlier <clears throat> remember michael hewitt um said that preaching was a higher priority for Jesus than healing people. 
And that's quite a confronting thing because and from our perspective, we might say actually healing is more important than preaching. But unless people turn to Jesus, unless they are, uh, unless they repent and can, and follow him, um, they can still spend eternity lost to Jesus. A true disciple won't spend eternity lost to Jesus. A true disciple, true disciple will spend eternity with Jesus. And that's what Jesus desires, doesn't he? True disciples to spend eternity with. Now back to the passage. Um, this time in Jesus' ministry was peak popularity. And as I said earlier, people were, were traveling for days to come to him. And in verse 10 it says that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And <clears throat> pushing forward here, the Greek word means to seize with more or less violence. So um, things were really getting out of hand. So how did he respond to such overwhelming popularity? He went up a mountain and he appointed disciples. He was, his identity was definitely not dependent on the approval of others, was it? That's the opposite of what um, everyone else would have done in that situation. <clears throat> so that's our first point. Jesus wants um, disciples, not crowds. On to our second point. <clears throat> Jesus gives a unique identity to his disciples. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus chose 12 disciples, not 13 or 9? For Jewish people, the, the number 12 is sacred, isn't it? The number 12, of course, immediately springs to mind the 12 tribes of Israel, which descended from the patriarch Jacob's 12 sons. These 12 tribes were the foundation stones upon which the nation of Israel had been built. And Jesus drew upon this traditional symbolism, and by going out among his followers and pulling 12 men aside to be his close associates, um, Jesus was sending an important message. Without saying a word, this action of choosing 12 men for special duty would have said, the new Israel is here with me and with these 12 men. Therefore, when Jesus chooses 12 apostles, he's symbolically expressing his intention to rebuild Israel. <coughs> to reconstitute Israel around himself for the apostles as essential leaders. So what was the role of these 12 men? Well, if you're like me, <clears throat> you skipped to the preaching and driving out demons bit, and you missed the uh, that they might be with him bit, <clears throat> which is verse 14. The first job of disciples of Jesus was simply to be with Jesus. And then in a secondary sense, we do the things that he asks us to and gives us authority to do. But how often do we get this the other way around? What comes first for you? Being with Jesus or doing things for Jesus? A guy called um, David Guzik writes, A preacher will only be as useful to Jesus to the extent that he has been with Jesus. There is little done for eternal good by those who preach without having a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think the statement applies to everything we do for Jesus, not just preaching. So then Mark lists uh, for us each of the names of the disciples, and we're told that one of them was Simon, who 
Jesus later renamed to Peter. And the other two were James and John, who Jesus renamed to Berenages, which means sons of thunder. What's all this renaming about? What What's going on here? It's very common in scripture, isn't it? You think way back to Genesis, uh, when God renamed Abraham to Abraham, and it keeps on going right through the whole scripture, the whole Bible, until we get to Saul, and Jesus changed his name to Paul in the New Testament. So Tim Keller writes that in biblical times, names were extremely important. Your name conveyed your essence. If you had a big life event, you changed your name. Um, remember when um, uh, Jacob wrestled with uh, the Lord, um, and and he his name was changed to Israel. If you were a great person, you had multiple names. And it's interesting to note that um, one of the concordances lists 198 names and titles of Jesus in the Bible. But everyone had a personal name, a true name of how you thought of yourself. And you didn't hand that out to too many people. And it's no different today. You all know uh, Paul David Hewson, don't you? Paul David Hewson? He's also known as Bono, lead singer of U2. Uh, we all know Bono. We don't necessarily know Paul David Hewson. It came from a nickname his friends used to call him Bonavox, which is a Latin phrase meaning good voice. So changing a name is part of uh, an important part of um, creating a new identity, isn't it? Now, naming is also a wholesome act of authority. And it's wholesome because choosing a name for something or someone means we will have a connection and a responsibility to care for that which we name for the rest of our lives. And you have to have a certain authority to rename something, don't you? I mean, I might decide to call a Mount Prongia Graham's Mountain, Mount Graham, but uh, that's not going to catch on at all. I don't have the authority to change the name of Mount Prongia. You can't just name anything you like and expect it to stick. And we didn't choose the names of our children lightly. I mean, we thought and prayed and discussed each one of our children's names in depth, even the spelling. And um, and why is that? Well, naming has a shaping power, and names carry power. We named each of our children with names that we hope that they will come to embody. Anya means grace, and we hope that she will not only be a gracious person, uh, but she will also know Jesus, the source of grace. Gezia comes from um, the, the Old Testament, and it's a sweet-scented spice called cassia, which is an ingredient in the oil of anointing. We hope that she will spread the fragrance of Christ in her life. Joshua means God is deliverance. And we hope and pray that he will know Jesus as deliverer and be strong and courageous like his namesake in the Bible. So there's all this thought and prayer and effort that's gone into naming um, our kids. And I'm sure you're the same uh, with your children or your pets or whatever. But there's a limit to how much power humans have in this regard, isn't it? I mean, we can kind of express um, our desires through the name, through naming our children, but we can't make that happen. We we can we can influence that, but we can't make it happen. But when you think about God, God also names, but names carry power. His names carry power. Remember in Genesis one, when God creates, He names first, and then it comes into existence. 
In other words, God names, when God names, he determines the nature of what he names. He determines the nature of what he names. So in verse 14, uh, where it says that Jesus appointed 12, the Greek word means manufacture. He manufactured 12. He made them 12. He created something new that day. And he gave them what it took to be his disciples and to, to do what he wanted them to do. Jesus' naming has that power. Jesus has divine power to call into being out of nothing that which he names as he names it. And that's why Jesus renames Simon to Peter, which means rock. Um, now, Peter was anything but rocky early on uh, in, his, in his walk with Jesus, wasn't he? He was more like quicksand. Looks firm, but when you put your weight on it, you sink up to your weight, waist. It was only when he understood God's grace and love and he began to uh, be with Jesus, if you like, and, and first that his, he grew into his new identity and became the rock of the church. <coughs> what has Peter's renaming got to do with us here in the 21st century? John 10 verse 3 says, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now let's stop and think about that. It, it can't be, Jesus can't be meaning here just our normal names, right? Um, Jesus' flock is pretty big. I mean, it's got billions of people in it, right? And let's say, for example, I mean, how many people are called John in Jesus' flock? It's got to be about 10 million, right? Um, so if Jesus said, hey, John, 10 million people are going to, yeah, right? So it's got to be something unique. Because each sheep knows the name by which the shepherd calls them. Jesus says he calls his own sheep by name. In other words, his name for each of us is unique. When he calls our name, and I'm sure you've heard the voice of Jesus calling you, we'll know it is that he's calling us, not somebody else. So Jesus uh, gives each of us our true name that's unique to us. And I was thinking about my name, Graham, and I've never liked it, to be honest. Um, I think I've shared that before. Um, and part of it is that uh, its meaning is gravel driveway. It's not, it's not cool, really. Gravel driveway. I mean, you dirt and gravel that people walk on. Awesome. Wonderful. That's very uplifting. And I was thinking I want to be just more than dirt and stones that people walk on, if that's possible. But then an amazing thing happened. God dropped a thought into my mind that made me tear up. What is a gravel driveway? We've got a gravel, a gravel driveway at our place. It's a path that makes it a whole lot easier to get home, doesn't it? We could get home without it, but it would mean we'd have to drive through paddocks and down farm races and all sorts of things. So it would be way more difficult to get home without our gravel driveway. And the reason I teared up is that God was telling me that my true identity that's unique to me is to be a path that makes it easier for people to come home to Jesus. And that brought a lump to my throat. I'd be honoured to be there. Maybe being a gravel driveway isn't so bad after all.
So I started to see my name in a new light after that. So whether Jesus renames you as he as he did to um, Simon, or maybe he gives you a new insight over what your name is. The name that he gives us will be strong. It can handle anything that life throws at us. That's our part of our identity. So whether we're rich or poor or happy or sad or going through good times or bad times, our identity should be solid and constant. That's, that's what an identity should be, isn't it? But the identity that people seek these days is not solid at all. It seems to me that it's based on feelings or performance or possessions or popularity uh, or all of the above. And so this whole idea of Jesus um, giving us a new name or renaming us or um, giving us a a new understanding of our our name uh, comes with a a vocation. Um, The scripture says God has prepared a life of good works for us to do. So there's a a whole vocation around his calling to us as disciples. So Jesus' name for you is unique, and it carries with it a unique purpose and a vocation that only you can fulfill. So the choice before each of us is clear. Will we accept and seek to grow into the identity that Jesus has given us, or will we reject it and seek our own name? So Jesus gives us, each of us, a unique identity. <clears throat> now on to um, this, the third point. Rejecting the identity that Jesus offers us has eternal consequences. And uh, in this um, passage of, of Scripture, um, Jesus says something that has made many Christians tremble. And that is, uh, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Um, and I remember reading that when I was younger and I was, I was like, wow, I, see, I hope I don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And that's an eternal, eternal sin. They'll never be forgiven. Um, but simply thinking that uh, means that you haven't blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain why. In this passage, um, in, in verses, actually verses 20 to 22 of chapter 3, we come across the only um, two of the only three theories of trying to make sense of who Jesus is. So as, um, Jesus and his disciples enter a house and they're trying to have something to eat, but they can't because of the press of humanity uh, demanding healing from them. And then his family turn up to take charge of him because they say he's out of his mind. Thanks for your support, Farnell. That's wonderful. So here's the first first theory. He's insane. He's a lunatic. Then the Pharisees turn up and say he's possessed. So this is the second theory. He's evil. He's in league with the devil. So why, why these theories? Well, a theory tries to make sense of the available data, doesn't it? You see something unusual or strange and you, and you come up with an idea that, that might explain it. <coughs> and the available data we've, we've um, covered uh, on Jesus up to this point is, is pretty outlandish, to be fair, isn't it? I mean, um, Mickey covered the title, The Son of Man. And that's from uh, the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man was a divine figure from heaven who will come again to judge and cleanse the earth at the end of time. Um, <laughs> that's if someone claimed to be that well you're either um, a lunatic 
or maybe you're possessed. Um, you know, how would you, if someone came up to you and said that, or one of your good friends, you'd be like, okay. Sarah covered the name uh, Lord of the Sabbath, uh, meaning he was the originator and institutor of the Sabbath. And he, he also claimed to forgive sins, so he was the forgiver of sins. So in our modern world, um, people attempt to say that uh, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Do these claims leave room to um, for that to be an option? And I'm, I'm 100% sure that if someone came up to me and said, I have always existed, I created the world, I am the ultimate reality, and your eternal destiny will depend on your relationship with me, I'd go and call call um, the ambulance. Could they be a good moral teacher? Absolutely not. They would either be a fruit loop or possessed by the devil himself. But would either a fruit loop or the devil bring healing and dignity and shalom to thousands of people like Jesus did? And would he not try and, um, if, if he was the devil, why would he give people freedom to choose, to follow? Um, the devil does the opposite. He tries to coerce, to, to try and addict and bring people under his control. And Jesus is not like that. That's probably something more um, significant to me. Jesus gives us freedom to choose. So there's only one real theory that works with the available data. And that is, of course, that Jesus is who he said he was. The Messiah, the Son of the living God, as Peter proclaimed. So now Jesus has some pretty stern words for the Pharisees who believe that he's possessed by the devil. And this is the context for his statement. Firstly, he points out the absurdity of the idea by saying that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And you imagine in, if, we, if we heard that um, Ukraine won the battle against Russia and then someone said, oh no, it was Putin that did that. Putin beat him, um, won the battle against himself. Would that make any kind of sense? Absolutely not. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Before you can plunder a strong man's possessions, first of all, you have to tie him up. And in doing so, this statement, he's, he's saying that the strong man is the devil and his possessions are people who are under the sway of the devil. And before you can um, uh, plunder uh, the possessions of the devil, which are the people, you've got to be able to tie them up, to, to tie the devil up. So Jesus was um, not only saying he's not the devil, he's claiming to be stronger than the devil. Again, a divine term. And then he says this confronting statement, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So remember, it's the Pharisees that said, that Jesus had an impure spirit, right? And Jesus said, if you, if that's what, if that's position you take, that's an eternal sin. You will not be forgiven for taking that situation. So in other words, if you want to cause the Holy Spirit and all that he offers impure, they reject Jesus' salvation, the, the salvation offered by God. They reject the unique identity offered by Jesus. They reject the call to discipleship and they will not be forgiven. So if you're following Jesus, this, even no matter how badly you're following Jesus, this statement does not apply to you, right? I hope that puts your heart at rest. So rejecting Jesus and the identity that he offers has eternal consequences. So the last point.
today, members of an eternal family, which is our first family. So in the last few uh, verses of today's passage, we read that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and while they waited outside, they sent someone in to call him. And when Jesus was told, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you, Jesus replied, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now you would have thought that Jesus' um, uh, actual family, his um biological family would have special privileges before him but in this context they it looks like Jesus family are trying to cut across um, uh, Jesus obedience to what God is calling him to do and so they don't have special privileges now unfortunately Mark is really sparse on details um, well Mark's writing down what Peter is saying is as if you recall and uh, we don't know what happened next did he go out to his mother and brothers we just simply don't know so is Jesus rejecting his own mother and family not at all but he is reminding his disciples that there is a kinship that takes priority over blood relations he embodies what he just said because his own family are not doing God's will by seeking to stop Jesus' ministry. And uh, I was reading um, a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and I've, I've mentioned this book before by James K.A. Smith, and he wrote something very confronting to me at the time. Um, and he, what he said was this, What counts most as family is not the closed nuclear unit that is so often idolized as the family, Instead, the church constitutes our first family. I'll read that again. What counts most as family is not the closed nuclear unit that is so often idolized as the family, in quote marks. Instead, the church constitutes our first family. Now, I'm not going to lie, I found that pretty confronting. But that's pretty much what Jesus says in verse 35. So what does it mean to say that the people of God the church, are our first family. Um, James K.A. Smith goes on to say, Love and its obligations traverse the boundaries of private residences and nuclear families because they initiate us into a household that is bigger than what is under the roof of our house. If the church is our first family, then our second home should be defined by it and our doors ought to be open to the stranger, the sick and the poor. So, what he's saying is that our nuclear families are actually part of a, something much, much bigger, the church of God. And our nuclear families should be defined by the church and, and God's calling uh, to the church. And I know um, everyone does this in our, in our congregation. They open the, the homes uh, to each other. Um, and, but also perhaps we could um, take this a step further to open our homes to the stranger, the sick and the poor. So does this mean we have to put the needs of the stranger, the sick and the poor above the needs of our spouses and children? Not at all. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So that's, that's something um special and unique 
and the same there's a lot of teaching around children but just as the saying goes no man is an island the same applies to the nuclear family and this is what i think james k a smith is saying that uh, that um the nuclear family has been designed by god to be dependent on a larger body the church so as important and special to us as our biological families are becoming a disciple of jesus receiving our true name and vocation and seeking to grow into that identity in obedience to god means that we become members of an eternal family one that becomes our first family so what have we covered today we've covered four points firstly jesus wants disciples not crowds secondly jesus has a unique name and identity and vocation for each one of us to grow into thirdly rejecting jesus and the identity that he offers the call to discipleship has eternal consequences and for becoming a disciple of jesus grants us membership of an eternal family one that will last forever which is our first family <coughs> so looking again at our three questions in mark of who jesus is what did he do and what is his call to his people this passage tells us who is jesus Jesus is the creator of the new Israel. He gives names, identities and vocations. He creates them as he names. When he names, he creates. <coughs> he is also stronger than the strong man, the devil. Secondly, what did he do? He healed and delivered. Despite the fact that he didn't want crowds. You think about that. He wants disciples, not crowds. But when the crowds came to him, he healed them. He delivered them. It's a beautiful picture of grace. <coughs> and he also called and he created and he commissioned his disciples. And in doing so, he established a new Israel, one built around him with the apostles as the central leaders. He didn't just have a little band of men together. What he began on that day was as was the going to grow into something absolutely humongous and we're yet to see that come to fulfillment <coughs> what is his call to us as people i think there's a great number of calls in this passage today and as i as i go through them you and, and maybe the lord's given you more uh, call uh, calls that that are unique to you but these are the ones that I could see. His call to us is to be disciples, not part of the crowd. So are you part of the crowd or are you actively following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus? He wants us to follow him because he is the son of man, the divine figure, the son of God. <coughs> not because of what he can do for us. His call is for us to be with him first and to do things for him second, not the other way around. <clears throat> and that's one that challenged me. Be with him first and do things for him second, not the other way around. His call is for us to seek and receive the true name he has given us and to grow into that identity and vocation. How do you find that? How do you find that out? What your true name, what your 
vocation is spend time with Jesus and serve, start serving. Finally, his call to us is to become part of the first family, the eternal family, the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. What call resonates most in your heart this morning? Let's just bow our heads and spend some time in prayer. Lord, you called <clears throat> each of your disciples by name, and they came and they followed you. Father, help us to listen to your call. Help us to listen to your voice. May we be the sheep that know your name for us. And we know your voice. Lord, may we be true disciples of yours. Not part of the crowd. Lord, as we see how much you love us. As you see, as we see how much you've given for us. As we see what you have given us as your children. Lord, may we respond in love and a strong desire, fan that desire into flames for us to follow you as your true disciples. And Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for <clears throat> your presence with each one of us, whether we're by ourselves or we're part of a group of people. Lord, refresh us in your love today. Lord, as we rest on this day, may we rest with you. Lord, and if you call us to bring shalom to someone, Lord, may we be attentive to your call and obedient to it. Thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you that you are Lord and God. We thank you that um, when you name, you create. Lord, only you can do that. Lord, bless each one of us today and grant us a special portion of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.